Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Novelist Tony White on his latest book, The Fountain in the Forest. Tony White is the author of five novels, including Foxy T. Previously literary editor of The Idler, he has written for The Guardian and The New Statesman and recently collaborated with artist Blast Theory on the library's live-streaming project A Place Free of Judgment. White was creative entrepreneur in residence in the French department at King's College London and has been writer in residence at UCL Cease and at the Science Museum. And we should also mention that Tony is currently chairing the board of our own radio station, Resonance FM. And Tony's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is The Fountain in the Forest. Tony, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you. So how would you describe The Fountain in the Forest? The Fountain in the Forest is the first of three novels which explore the immediate aftermath of the miners' strike, or let's say the the 90 days immediately following the miners' strike between the, the end of the strike and the Battle of the Beanfield on the 1st of June 1985. The Battle of the Beanfield, of course, was when... Uh, couple of hundred vehicles travelling to the Stonehenge Free Festival in June. On June the 1st was uh, forced off the road, ambushed effectively by the Wiltshire police. Uh, vehicles destroyed uh, and property destroyed. Families separated, 500 plus arrests. The largest civilian mass arrest, I gather, in British history outside of the Second World War. And uh, The Fountain in the Forest is a detective story. It's set in London right now. It's set in the south of France in the mid-1980s and at the Battle of the Beanfield itself. And the novel picks up with uh, Detective Sergeant Rex King, who uh, works out of the Serious Crime Command at Hoban Police Station, and he's been called to a, an incident uh, backstage at the Royal Palace Theatre. A body has been found in the paint frame, a Georgian scene painting studio, which in fact belongs to a mate of Rex's, and the novel kicks off with that. And so far, so crime novel, but this book also follows in the tradition of the, the French literary technique, Oulipo. Yes. Tell us what that is. OK, uh, yes, Oulipo is the short name for uh, a, group of, a group of international writers that was formed uh, in France in the 60s, and it stands for Ouvroir de Literature Potentielle, uh, Oulipo for short, the workshop of potential literature. 
And this is a, a group of writers including Harry Matthews, George Perec, who's probably the most well-known of the Ulpo group, and others who believed or thought it would be interesting to apply mathematical, scientific and other experimental techniques, which they called constraints, to the production of, of literature. And uh, Perec is probably the, the, the best known of the Ulipo writers, and he is, he's best known for his novel La Dispression, which is translated by Gilbert Adair into English as A Void, uh, which I always thought was a slightly unfortunate uh, title for a Georges Perec novel, because you want to do anything but avoid it. It's, it's brilliant. But um, Avoid, La Dispression, is a novel that's written without using the letter E. That was the constraint that, that was applied uh, to the novel. That is a detective novel as well. And, but it, it's also kind of a, a novel about the, about the Holocaust. It's a terribly interesting, important work. It's also incredibly funny, witty and, and generous, which makes it all the more poignant. Other constraints that Ulipo uh, proposed include... A mandated vocabulary, which means that the words that are going to be used to create uh, a work of literature have to be predetermined in advance. And that's been used particularly by Harry Matthews, uh, among others, for a number of short stories. But I had always had a feeling that the mandated vocabulary was a constraint that hadn't really been explored to its full effect in the novel. And so that is the technique that you choose to use. And particularly what you've done here is you've not only chosen a particular set of mandated vocabulary, but that's particularly located in time as well, in terms of the time at which the book is set. It is, it is. Um, I, when I was researching the, the novel over, over a number of years, uh, particularly working in the archives or with the archives, because the archives of Leeds Other Paper are a series of bound volumes that are, that are kept in Leeds City Library, and also the Guardian archives from the period. I kept finding myself drawn to the back pages of the, uh, of the newspaper as I was kind of scrolling through the microfiches, up at, initially up at uh, Collindale, the big old fabulous uh, warehouse where the newspaper collection reading room used to be, uh, which which is now now closed, and subsequently at the in the new newspaper reading room at the British Library, I found myself drawn to the back pages of the Guardian because in the mid nineteen eighties I used to faithfully buy the Guardian every day, you know. And the first thing I would do when I got back home uh, or to wherever I was going with the newspaper would would be open it to the back page, up, you know, unfold it, fold it back around itself, and do the quick crossword. I used to do that every day. But then in those days, The Guardian only cost about 10p. And um, as I was reading through these old issues of, of The Guardian, I found myself drawn to those, uh, those back pages again, the Steve Bell cartoons, the crosswords. And I just thought, ah, you know, I think I remember this crossword. Maybe it would be, it would be amusing to just to redo one of them. And so I did. Uh, but what I wasn't prepared for was this kind of Proustian uh, rush of memories and associations, you know, that came with it. And remembering that uh, Perec, uh, amongst other uh, literary works that, that he produced, he's an incredibly uh, prolific uh, writer, he compiled a weekly crossword for, the, for, a, for a Parisian um, news journal. I just sort of made that connection with the, the mandated vocabulary and thought, wouldn't it be interesting if these crossword solutions, these words that I'd written out on the back of a newspaper 30 years before, could be used as a mandated vocabulary? And because the it's kind of a gift 
to a novelist this period of 90 days with a cataclysmic event at the start, the minor strike, and a cataclysmic event at the end, the Battle of the Beanfield, and two these two events which may be connected even. And just for a novelist, you know, to kind of be able to inhabit that uh, that space, this defined space, and try and bring it to life in a piece of fiction uh, was is a gift, you know. So I took this one step further and thought, well, actually, if I'm, if I'm mapping this trilogy, because uh, The Fountain in the Forest is the first of three novels, against a 90-day period, each chapter can be mapped against a day in 1985. And so The Fountain in the Forest is a, is a novel of 30 chapters, and each chapter has to be written using all of the crossword solutions from the Guardian quick crossword on that day in 1985. And so how does that actually work in practice? And it seems like a, a, you know, a, a fun conceit to set yourself. But in terms of working with that, was there any times... I mean, give us an example of where you, you really struggled with one. It was, it was all a struggle. I mean, every, every, uh, every single word was a struggle, but hopefully that doesn't show, you know, when you, when, you read the, when you read the book. There was nothing playful about it at all. It was incredibly rigorous, kind of torture, you know. Um, but the really strange thing was that I'd done most of the research for the novel before producing the mandated vocabulary. And strangely, things started to fall into place, you know, as if almost as if the novel was predestined, you know. So, so for example, chapter 20, uh, when we're in occupied Nice, you know, at the collapse of the Italian occupation and just as the, as the uh, Nazis are about to, to take over. Various bits, uh, various words kind of came into play, you know, that, that seemed to almost have been hiding there in plain sight all along, just waiting for me to turn them into this this chapter. Because it it's a chapter that deals with a baker, a kind of peasant baker in uh, up up in the mountains above Nice, Monsieur Junot, and his kind of quest to to uh, to to get to see this kind of legendary kind of prototype electrical oven that's been produced by the the Italian safe makers, uh, Conforti, the Conforti group, which they have brought to uh, to Nice for this kind of swan song, kind of fascist esposizione of kind of Italian industrial uh, triumphs that's to be held on the on the on the beach at Nice, but uh, but which is is kind of interrupted by the collapse of, of Mussolini's regime. And here in chapter nineteen, we we had uh, we have the the word safe, we have the word cook. And, and these words, which seem to kind of just be, have been waiting there, ready for this story to be to be written. So, on the one hand, it, it was kind of torture, but on the other hand, it seemed to be predestined in a in a, in a very strange way. And I, I think there's a kind of kind of connection as well with, you know, a kind of literary precedent, I, I suppose, for this kind of use of of a, of a mandated vocabulary, which can be seen in the, in the novels of Italo Calvino, uh, particularly the Castle of Cross. Destinies, which is a, a novel in which he each chapter, each each story, everything in the novel is is produced from a, a two hands of uh, tarot card. He deals the tarot deck into a grid and then reads across uh, the pictures and uses those to to generate a story. This is a book that I read at the time as well in the mid nineteen eighties because Picador were bringing out these beautiful kind of paperbacks of Calvino at the time. And in his author's note, at the end, he talks about, uh, which I'd obviously kind of taken on board but completely forgotten about, and then when I looked at it, looked at it a couple of months ago, it kind of 
blew me away because he he talked about the, the tarot cards as a as a kind of crossword, and this that this was a, a sort of machine for generating stories for generating literature was which was exactly what I'd been um, feeling about the the fountain in the forest used the mandated vocabulary that I was using in the fountain in the forest, but what's interesting about the Calvino novel and what is made explicit by his use of the tarot is that there's some kind of almost like a divinatory sort of uh, element to this uh, to this laying down of, of of particular words or particular images. So as well as the mandated vocabulary in terms of the crossword answers, you also mentioned this book is a book of 30 chapters. Each is set on a day, and that day follows the French Revolutionary Calendar. Tell us what that is. It does. The the French Revolutionary Calendar was developed in the the run-up to the French Revolution by an anarchist playwright named Sylvain Maréchal. He felt that there needed to be a non-hierarchical secular calendar with no days dedicated to royalty or gods but everything on a level and everything uh, rational and uh, he proposed uh, 10 day weeks the days of the week would just be called day one day two day three day four etc and that there would be a a new month uh, names uh, through the year things like Brumaire um, is the most familiar to students of Karl Marx perhaps and these were related to seasonal changes, the days, of the, the, the names of the months. And each day in the calendar is also dedicated to an item of everyday rural life, a tool, a foodstuff, a crop, livestock, and thus every day celebrates everyday life. But also in a, in a timely fashion, it's, all, it's a kind of an almanac in a way. There were two. There were two things that kind of drew me to the the Revolutionary Calendar. One, one was uh, my initial interest. In fact, was piqued by or provoked by the artist Stuart Brisley, the British artist Stuart Brisley, who had approached me to talk about a, a, a hitherto unacknowledged aspect of his his work at the time, which was that uh, since the nineteen seventies he had been making a series of performances that were ten days long as an explicit reference to the to the revolutionary calendar. And we spoke about this through a series of conversations while I was doing my residency at King's. And he saw this as a kind of a framework in which a kind of revolutionary performance could take place. So that idea was part of the inspiration. But it was also kind of mechanical, you know, that here was a way of looking at time differently, a way of throwing time up into the air, not needing to plod through events uh, in, a, in a literal fashion, but to be able to move backwards and forwards in time. But also, you know, these, these 90 days between the end of the miners' strike and the Battle of the Beanfield, if you look at that through the lens of the French Revolutionary Calendar, it's nine revolutionary weeks. And that just uh, begged a huge question to me, revolutionary how? And that was the, the question that, the, you know, the, the writing of the novel within that framework that I attempted to answer. And indeed, there was a, a certain revolution going on at those times, but not necessarily one that we would... Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think, I think even in the, the literal sense of a kind of rotation, you know, the, the, the kind of gun sights, if you like, of this kind of the state violence that had been visited upon the miners, you know, this once that enemy within, as they were infamously called, had been defeated, uh, you know, a, a new enemy had to be found. And, and here, the, in, in this convoy of people travelling to the Stonehenge Festival... They were found, and, and the techniques perhaps that have been used um, on the minor strike were applied to this new kind of new civilian group. So your main protagonist is Rex King, King King, yes. we should say, we'll just let that hang there. And um, normally I would say, who is he? Tell us something about him. But really, who he is is the central story of the book. 
Um, so we won't go too much into that. And instead, let's talk about the the investigation that he's taking part in to begin with in the book, mm-hmm. which is Hazen, who turns out to be his friend, Terry Hobbs, is is either, we don't know whether he's the victim or the perpetrator of, yes. of this crime at the beginning. The whole investigation is very for want of a better word, forensic, you know, you seem to have done a lot of research into the, you know, the various acronyms and the, the workings of a, of the close workings of a police investigation. Tell me something about doing that. Yes, I'm, I'm very interested in, I was very interested in Rex being a, a kind of straight up guy, a kind of a policeman who does it by the book, who's been through all the training. He has a, as you say, he has an interesting background in the force but he, he he really plays it by the book, and they, they you know he and uh, his friend Webster, you know Eddie Webster, who's the chief investigating officer on on the on the investigation. They're uh, they're friends, kind of who, but they've they've come up through the system together. They were they were in the um, at Hendon together, came up through their training together, and they have a kind of shorthand. I'm sort of interested in those kinds of micro dialects and the way that language gets used in the workplace, the way that um, official names of things are subverted and, uh, and used as a kind of banter. And, the, and this, you know, this is something that you can observe in real life. 20 years ago, uh, I worked for the post office. I, you know, when I first left art school and had a young family to support, I worked for the post office first at, um, at St Pancras Way, the big NW1 sorting office that used to be there, and then up in Upper Street in the old N1 sorting office. And there were little micro-dialects differences between these offices that were only uh, only kind of a, a mile apart but where that had, had quite insulated uh, workforces for a century or so and so in the Camden office overtime was known as gobble for some reason you know whereas in the Islington office it was known as fat you go to a, a post office outside of London like the the, the post office in in Bristol and there they'd call it dock it you know and these, these little kind of differences and, and investments in in language and banter I, I find very interesting and in the the police force even though all of the the operations within Hoban police station completely fictional there's no, there's not you know a scrap of this uh, in terms of the organizational structure etc that, that's real it's all it's all fiction there, none of the cases are real but these kind of acronyms and the language and the and the way that they used was kind of my I suppose a kind of educated guess about how people interact and, and where they find humour. And uh, and so Rex and Eddie have a kind of bantering uh, bantering relationship and that kind of plays out in spite of the seriousness of the, uh, of the investigation, if you like. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tony White. We're talking about his latest novel, The Fountain in the Forest. And he said there that Rex is a, is a police officer that likes to play it by the book. But another one of the strands of this story is this hanging over him, this often example of an unlawful killing of a black man that's happened in police custody, Trevor yes. Tennyson. Well, Rex is the kind of station lead for safety and detention, and so he has a kind of a, an administrative role in the, the Hoban Police Station for you know monitoring safety and detention, monitoring incidents and use of force incidents, UFOs as they're sometimes known. And that's all kind of that's all sort of fine, just about manageable within the kind of uh, within it the working hours he has available to him. But what is coming up, uh, they learn at the beginning of the novel, is a, a full-on SIC, which is a, a safety and custody uh, inspection, which is a kind of United Nations-level kind of diplomatic investigation that involves all the, the constabularies and, and takes, you know, uh, is a very rigorous kind of... Go, it goes through all of these kind of safety procedures and training with a fine-tooth comb, interviewing prisoners, etc. And that's, that's on the horizon. But then somehow, at, at the beginning of the novel some some information is leaked about the Tennyson case this a young man who was uh, arrested at a protest and who died in restraint in Hoban police station this is a fictional case I should stress but this is something that happens quite regularly un- unfortunately and if anyone who's interested in finding out about deaths in police custody or following other contact with the police should look at the uh, the resources and the website of Inquest, which is the charity that do a, a very difficult job of uh, campaigning for victims' families uh, of, of these kinds of deaths, but also of monitoring and publishing data and keeping uh, regularly updated figures to do with, with uh, these kinds of deaths in the public uh, domain. And so it seems to me that if you're writing an, uh, a novel about the police, if you're writing a detective story and you're not reflecting that aspect of, uh, of contemporary policing, I don't think you're doing your job. So for me, it was, re- it was really important that an incident of this nature is, is uh, happening, is unfolding in the, in the, police, in the fictional police station within, within the novel. And Rex as safety, SD, safety and detention uh, lead, is part of a series of uh, meetings that are exploring the, uh, the implications of this leak of some new documents relating to the, to the um, Tennyson case. I want to take us to the, the middle section of the book, and yeah. we're back in the, the early 80s in the south of France. Yes. This part is set in an abandoned village that has become 
like a little social experiment commune, if you will. Yeah. Um, and again, this is incredibly vividly recreated. Tell us something about this place, this area. Yes, this, this, is, uh, this is a fictional village uh, of La Fontaine en Forêt, which is up the mountains, maybe sort of a, a few miles north and further up the mountain from Vence uh, in the mountains above Nice. It's a very interesting area. It's an area that's associated with artists. Um, you know, it's the Vence uh, and its its surroundings is where kind of Matisse lived, the village of Tourette, a little further up the hill. But at the time, it was also uh, in the mid-80s, March 1985, when a young Englishman abroad named JJ arrives in Cagnes sur mer um, having travelled down from uh, from the UK on a little bit kind of uh, award he got at sixth form, it's under construction. You know, there's a, a huge, huge motorway that's being built along the coast, and so the the production of this road, which is going to link Aix-en-Provence, where where Cezanne, you know, famously painted uh, Montaigne de Saint Victoire, uh, with uh, Italy uh, motorway. So this is being built, and so in the midst of the beautiful French Riviera and the forested hills and mountains uh, above, and these uh, these great limestone crags known as the Bows, there's a kind of veil of noise of production, you know, that that's going on um, all the time, and the village of uh, La Fontaine en Forêt is kind of built around the idea that it's it's not un- unreasonable actually if you look at, uh, at, at how settlements formed uh, in that part of in that part of France they tend to form around a spring or a water source and in a site that's defendable so so Vence itself uh, is a kind of fortified hilltop town built around a you know a spring as indeed further up the mountain is the village of Tourette-Sulu. And what I, what I sort of uh, proposed with uh, La Fontaine en Forêt is that there's a further village a little way up the mountains at uh, La Fontaine, beneath, beneath a, a, a fictional kind of uh, crag, Bao La Fontaine. This is a, a village that, that was abandoned after the Second World War. Um, there's just one person left living there. And a group of artists, academics, Potter and various others have kind of moved in and begun to kind of restore this village to try and live a, a kind of revolutionary life, living their life by the, by the revolutionary calendar. JJ, this young Englishman, he's slightly... Um, he's got no real reason to go back to the UK. Um, and he, you know, is invited to, to stay for a night in, in this uh, incredible village this incredible spot and he gets to like it and and sort of wants to find a kind of a, a metier you know and a reason you know a reason to stay there and so that the the middle section of the novel you know we 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 get to know this this place uh the way of life there its history you know which goes back to um back to the second world war and the, and, the, and the italian and the nazi occupations jj falls in love he falls in love with Sylvie. And here we have the, the mandated vocabulary kind of comes into play, you know. And as I was writing this, I knew that, you know, the 10th chapter of this sequence would have to feature the words erect, in flagrante delicto, arc. It was inevitable somehow that JJ and Sylvie would, would get together. There was romance in the air. It's, uh, it was written in the, uh, the crossword solutions. Uh, just one more thing from me then, and then I'll get you to read a bit if you would. Okay. Um, you've mentioned already that this is the first of a trilogy, yes. so what can we expect next? We'll see a lot more of uh, Detective Sergeant Rex King. 
And actually, because the crosswords are, uh, are all done, the Mad Lady vocabulary is there, I'm, in, I'm well into, uh, into volume two. I can tell you that in chapter, I can't remember, is it chapter 12 or chapter 22 of volume two, we are back in the Riviera. We'll be back in, in the south of France. And in, I think it's chapter 12 of, of volume three, a very significant character from The Fountain in the Forest will return. And that will really set the cat among the pigeons. If you would read us some then, just tell us what you're going to read. I'm going to read a a little extract from, which is about two minutes long, perhaps, from the beginning of the novel. It's Rex. Since we were talking about Rex, I thought I'd read a little bit of of Rex. And this is chapter two, which is dedicated to hedge mustard, Velar, the herb. And uh, here we find Rex in the morning, and right now, today, Rex King had other things on his mind, and top of the list was coffee. Having got home after midnight and wound down for longer than he had planned, Rex had awoken with a hangover that was roughly commensurate, emphasis on rough, with the bottle of industrial Australian Shiraz he had finished at one thirty in the morning. He had just about had time for a shit and a shower, but not enough to load up the stove-top pot and make his usual espresso. There were plenty of cafes and restaurants to choose from around here, but Rex liked to put his money, such as it was, the way of local businesses who paid their taxes, rather than filling the non-dom coffers of the more ubiquitous chains that didn't. He wasn't an unreconstructed food philistine like some of his colleagues, but given the choice, Rex would go for a good fillet steak and chips over confit of anglet on a salad of wild hedge mustard every time. For even simpler fare, bacon sandwich simple, Sid's was hard to beat. It opened early too. Situated where they were between a hospital and a cop shop, the staff at Sid's were ready to cater to those clocking off nights or onto early shifts, and they had a sizeable menu. They also did good coffee, unlike the majority of builders-type cafes in London, where coffee often meant a spoonful of Nescafe dissolved in boiling water and topped up with milk. The late spring air was fresh enough to cut through his hangover a little, but the headache was only compounded by lack of sleep. He'd been too drunk to seriously practice any of the relaxation techniques that Helen had once taught him. Imagine that the in-breath is a wave, breathe out quickly through your teeth, so he'd been unable to stop his mind from racing, replaying and dissecting the events of the day. At three in the morning he had realised he was still awake and listening to the steady, dupal beat, usually inaudible, of the kitchen clock. Sitting outside Sid's with the Guardian on the table in front of him, folded up and unread, crossword not even started, and his coffee and a bacon sandwich on white toast on the way, there was plenty to think about. Three conflicting narratives that would be competing for his attention in the coming days, if not weeks and months. Firstly, there was his old friend Terry Hobbs, who was suddenly, astonishingly, front-runner to be the lead suspect in the murder investigation. Then there was the news of the safety in custody inspection. Now, cherry on the cake, Tennyson was about to be dumped in the public domain all over again. The first of these was puzzling, but Rex had been loudly relieved when it became apparent that at least it wasn't Hobbs's body they had found the previous day. The missing friend still hadn't returned Rex's call, but knowing Terry as he did, Rex had told Eddie that he was as confident as a bent bookie at Newmarket that Hobbs couldn't have done it, that he'd be willing to bet a year's salary there'd be no forensic evidence, not a single fingerprint, to link Tell to whoever it was that had been killed in the Royal Palace Theatre paint frame. The second, Rex was less worried about the outcome of any inspection than about the rigours and the burden of the SIC itself. 
like he didn't already have enough to do without having to accommodate a bunch of apparatchiks with clipboards crawling all over everything. He knew that he had kept a tight ship on SD, so it was just a matter of putting his head down and submitting to the forthcoming process, speaking when spoken to, framing every response within the relevant regulation and not obstructing them in any way. Easier said than done, but not impossible. That just left Tennyson. I've been talking to Tony White about his latest novel, The Fountain in the Forest. It's out now from Faber in the UK. Tony Thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.